0: Hello, and welcome to Soundwaves of Belonging with myself, Anihi Dashgard. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to my guest, Halei Gaudhary. She's the author of Fuse, a memoir of mixed-race identity and mental health. Her fiction, nonfiction, and poetry have been published in various literary journals, and she's currently the Reviews editor of Manola Review. Like me, Halei is biracial, half-Iranian, which was a lot of fun to compare identity notes around. We delve deep into what it means to grow up mixed-race, The fastest growing demographic, why Halle had a nose job in high school, and what the connection is between being mixed race and mental health issues, which both our memoirs address. We also talk about how creativity can foster a sense of belonging, how much our families know about what we wrote in our books, and whether recovery from trauma is really ever possible, or perhaps even desirable. This was a fantastic conversation. Please enjoy. Hello, halay. Thank you for jumping on today's podcast episode with me. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm very excited that we're finally having a conversation and live in front of whoever's listening to this. And uh, I wonder if you could just introduce yourself. Sure. Works. Well, I loved your book too, Breaking
1: the Ocean, which has got to be one of the best titles ever <laughs> for, for a book. I loved it. So yeah, I'm, I'm Halle uh, Gattery I'm a multi-genre writer in rural Ontario on Anishinaabe land. Yeah, I write a bit of everything. So Fuse, my memoir was, you know, my first book. I, you know, live out in rural Ontario. I have, you know, four kids, two dogs, three miniature goats and somewhere in the background, my partner who keeps all of us together.
0: So I'm going to just jump right into the deep waters here because I know that you have talked openly in your book and um, on social media about struggling with OCD, obsessive Mm -hmm. compulsive disorder. And I know that's linked to identity stuff. So we'll get to that. But how do you manage that living with four kids <laughs> rural Ontario on a farm with three goats and other multiple pets? I have to say it baffles me because I have two kids and I live in the city and I have trouble managing my day to day. To tell you the
1: truth, I mean, the OCD can be really tough to manage. I'm fortunate that my kids have a fairly nuanced and sophisticated understanding of what OCD is. So it's not like being a neat freak right? Like you, you can be very particular and neat, but that doesn't mean you have OCD. So if I see like water bottles or cups or stuff all over, I'll start to feel like my world is falling apart because my outer world is mimicking my inner world, which is very chaotic living in my head. Um, it sounds like a lot, but yes, it's a lot for my OCD living with all these lives that depend on me because I have so many rituals I need to complete in the morning. Um, but it's also... Um, this busyness that I need to maintain is I'm also an addict. And I find a lot of addicts are like me that, you know, once we get sober, we really need to keep ourselves busy or we get into trouble. And I'm not necessarily talking about relapse. I just, if I don't have anything to do, I kind of just go down this existential rabbit hole. It's not a good place to live.
0: I really appreciate you disclosing all of that because I think it's a I mean mental health is an, an still a relatively new conversation in society but mental health for people that are racialized and mixed race is an even more rarer conversation to to encounter. So I want to delve into this a little bit although I had elements I would say of OCD growing up but I recently got diagnosed with ADHD and which was very helpful. Um, And I wish I'd known earlier. Um, I take medication for anxiety and depression, which again, I started two years ago. I wish I'd known earlier. And um, it's hard for me to sometimes pick apart like what is what was genetic um, and what was circumstantial. And I know for me, after we moved from Iran to small town, Canada, um, and I write about this in my memoir, as you referred to earlier, there was severe ostracization, bullying racism and for me it came out psychosomatically because there was no ability to make meaning of those experiences at the time like we didn't talk about racism Um, we were one of the few brown families there and so i internalized it and it came out through some obsessive behavior later it came out through an eating disorder so there's certainly addiction stuff and then it kind of went into low grade like depression and anxiety It's a really interesting conversation because we talk about still mental health through still largely, I would say, biological terms, like what's genetic, what can we treat through medication, rather than looking primarily, I think, at systems. And I think, honestly, I would say this, I think that I probably would have had addictive 10, like the eating disorder I, I struggled with for many years, I can still fall into, you know, sort of that binge Mm -hmm. eating cycle when I'm not managing my stress well but I think that if I were to go back in time I might have had those tendencies around sort of feeling a little bit anxious or needing to control my environment or or um, hyper focusing in some areas which is an ADHD thing and under focusing in others but I don't think it would have come out to the extent that it, it has and it's never affected my work performance like many people that are racialized you know I perform when I need to because that's connected to survival but it came out how I treated my body and in relationship people that were closest to me and uh, and I've really struggled with that Mm -hmm.
1: yeah yeah I love what you said about um you know looking back you know you may if you may have had some of these tendencies but without the situational your situational upbringing I'm not necessarily talking about your parents I'm talking about cultural societal upbringing um maybe they wouldn't have flourished like they did because writing Fuse that was one of the hardest things for me is like my immediate family hasn't read it anyways mostly because they don't want to and no the truth is I don't think they could read it and, and and take it in the spirit in which it was written anyways so I am really happy I don't have to unpack everything for them and um, you know, I, I send a text to my dad and he doesn't know what I'm saying. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't right. know. <laughs> I <I'm> totally relate. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom, who is, you know, English is her first language. I mean, I still think she'd be reading on defense. You know what I mean? Like, how am I saying she screwed up as a parent? And as a parent, I can appreciate that. Right. So it's, I'm not being critical of her for that. I'm just saying that's probably how she'd go into that. So, When I was writing Fuse, I was, you know, really careful to say that, like, I first noticed there was something different about the way I thought and the way I processed things. When I was really young, like less than five and realizing standing there in a bikini, like, you know, when I said, you know, when other kids are running through sprinklers naked, I would never do that. Even, you know, at my grandfather's cottage, if my mom just tried to put me in a diaper, I have a memory standing there in a diaper with my chest bare feeling like I just wanted to die, that it was the most uncomfortable feeling ever. And I remember my diaper was soggy because I'd been in the water. Like I have this very like pointed memory of feeling uncomfortable in my body. And that's not something I'd been taught. Now, later, my father would, you know, make me feel, you know, terrible, about wearing short skirts and bring, you know, dump all that cultural Middle Eastern garbage on me. Um, But that hadn't happened when I was that young. He didn't care if I was running around naked when I was that young. I agree with you that we need to treat it on both fronts, like as a a biological function, you know, I'm not even going to say a biological like deformity or perversion or whatever, because I don't, I don't, I don't want to consider that my neurodivergence as, I'm not going to consider it a superpower, but I don't, it's just who I am. It's not not a bad thing necessarily. Um, and then also, you know, those societal and familial and cultural, those expectations, those also play a huge role in me becoming who I am. And as you said, like there's, there's so much, it's almost impossible to untangle it all.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it is really about recognizing, um, both fronts of obviously there's a predisposition, And then what happens to us, the systems that we grew up, the historical moment we're born into, I think, lessen or exacerbate those predispositions. Mm -hmm. I know that you come from a mixed race family. And again, I think this is a similarity between us. Our mothers are white British Mm -hmm. and fathers are Muslim Persian. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So tell me about what it was like to grow up in that chasm. So fascinating. Please tell us.
1: Well, I mean, I loved your story, story. because It was very much the same. Um, I think. I think one of the main differences between our mothers. My mom like converted to Islam when she married my father. I, I was. I wasn't sure if your mom did, but my mom did because it was like a prerequisite. Um, my, like my father's. You know, you, you got to do this. Um, and, but she was still very, for all intents and purposes, very um, bourgeois, white. You know. You know. we, we call her the great white because like (laughs) I I still say something and we're like me and my brother's like stay white mom stay white like it's just but it was also my mom who you know taught us about Nauru's and uh, was really interested to teaching us about our you know Mm -hmm. our culture my dad was like "Eh, don't worry about it you don't need it you know we didn't yeah, other than like terms of endearment, like you get a you know, and you know, call it like screaming to my kids, that's nice, and like don't touch, hands off. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit better. Like, I didn't learn my father, you know, he really just wanted us to embrace white Western culture until we hit our teenage years. And then it was like he got scared and was like, no, 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 no. I'm raised you to be a good Muslim girl. I was like, not really. (laughs) My dad prayed, but never insisted we pray. Like it was just this kind of periphery thing about us that, you know, you know, like, like the fact that, you know, you have a a bust of your great uncle, in your fireplace, like it just didn't really mean anything. It just was there. Um, But when we became teenagers, especially with me, because I was a girl, I shouldn't even say especially, I'm sure my brothers had their own trials, but very uh, um, alarmingly for me, because I was a girl, there was, you know, no freedom, there was, um, you know, you know, that line that it's not you, I don't trust, it's everybody else, like, that, that was like the mantra of my teens. <laughs> it's not you, it's everybody else, but really, it's me, um, so, you know, it was a lot of double standards between what I could do, and what my brothers could do, there was a lot of um you know just not understanding of any of the cultural struggle I was going through and you know or even my mental health issue because like depression does not exist like my, my teen years in particular were incredibly incredibly stressful and I could not wait to leave for university. It's not their fault. They were both trying to do the best for me but they were not on the same page.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then you have society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, telling me, you know, why do you have hair on your upper lip? What are you and why is your nose big? And, you know, I, I went through high school in grade nine. I had a nose job and then I wore blue contacts and I plucked my eyebrows, and I streaked sh- my hair blonde because I was trying to anglicize myself so badly. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I was born in Toronto, but my parents moved us to a very rural area and I just did not want to stand out. I was so tired mm-hmm. of standing out. And I mean, I'm not sure if you've experienced this, but I certainly have where I say I'm Persian and people will be like, you don't really look like you look like you're exotic, which is such a great word to use, but you're exotic. But I don't know. Maybe like Italian, you don't look Persian. It's it's really alarming because it like, it's very, it disassociates me from myself and that's, how I've spent my whole life disassociated from myself. And it's like, first of all, you don't get to tell me what I am and what I look like. It's a very colorized version of race. Mm-hmm. Um, and second. Cosmetic surgery to look less Persian. I've had my nose job, I've plucked my eyebrows. Like I said, I wore blue contacts for about two decades of my life. I had my hair dyed either close to blonde or streaked blonde and just not the way I was. Like laser hair removal on my face. Like I it was really, really, really tough. And then even then, though, people knew I was Persian. People, you know, would, you know, call me. You know, racial slurs like camel jockey, and I'll skip mm-hmm. the more colorful ones now. So, like, it's it's just a really intense experience to hold that you're not enough of anything to be anything. I already have all these mental health problems, and it really just exasperates them all.
0: That line's really powerful to be continuously told you're not enough to belong to anything. I mean, first of all, I just so resonate with so many of the things you're saying. So again, I'm just so appreciating that somebody is here talking my language. Just what a relief Um, because there's so few places to be privy to conversations like this. So there's a couple of things that, you know, there's mixed race individuals families are the growing fastest growing demographic racially speaking which I think is really interesting and that there is no place you can go to have yourself reflected back to you which is I think one of the primary pillars of developing our sense of selves but also feeling good in our sense of ourselves. and so without that um you know, I also grew up with both overt, well, mostly overt when I was growing up, and then subtle forms of of racism and how I internalized that. So the lasering and the you know dieting, which I think eventually resulted in the eating disorder. You know, the more t- more than ten years of forcing myself to vomit, which I know has taken a toll, um, and the various other ways in which mm-hmm. I think I abused my body, and then in the family, just yeah the out-and-out the out often war between different religions, different, obviously, genders, different cultural contexts. And I think cognitively, I aligned with my mother because whiteness was safety growing up. Um, but emotionally, because I was also born in Iran, aligned with my father and wanting to protect him. And so this constant sense of dissonance and the impact of that. and um, And I agree with you that, you know, this It's more subtle. It's the ways in which sort of feeling dismissed or underestimated, especially in my role of of CEO now, and I go to speak at something. And you know, if I'm with a white colleague, it's always the white colleague that will get, you know, sort of introduced or held up first. But also um the ways that you pointed out, like, oh, you're so exotic or you don't look Persian or you look Italian. And I think, yeah, you don't, like you said, you don't get to minimize my experience uh, now. And in fact, the fact you're doing that is actually painful because naming that I'm Persian is what's allowed me to actually make meaning of all that, those past situations Mm. and to take it off my shoulders and put it onto society's shoulders. So there's something really um, Mm. gross in that. It's another way of dismissing.
1: My older brother, I'm using him, I have a younger brother too, my older one doesn't really have any connection to his, you know, Persian side. And I, I mean, I, I don't, I can't really speak to him, but I wonder sometimes if it's because he didn't encounter the same levels of, you know, racism or, or just dissociation that I did. Um, and not that he didn't. I know that, especially when we moved out to this rural area, people did say things to him you know, his name's Kayvon, Kayvon Ali Gattery, like everyone just called him Kevin, just like I have a lot of white people that still call me Holly. And honestly, I don't care. I'm absolutely fine with people calling me either or. I wonder about that kind of thing all the time. And my younger brother married a, a Persian person. So like he's, <laughs> we're all very different in our experiences and how we identify. But um, for me, as I've gotten older, like you, I, I like wanted to fully embrace that Persian part of myself. And most Persian people I've met have been amazing, but sometimes, you know, you come across one or two, they're like, well, you don't even speak Farsi. I'm like, yeah, it's not my fault. Like I'm trying, like, but you know, sometimes I, it's like, don't push me out. Okay. Like I get the fact that I, I, yeah. you know, it's funny when I speak it. Cause I have this very thick accent. like, I get it. I'm fine with you laughing about it too. Like, I don't, I don't care, but it, it's funny because, you know, I want to be the part of that community too. And there's some can, can be this, like resistance there as well to let me in and you're just left by yourself not fully accepted on side so I think that's when you know I have to create a space for myself and just be not not to hell with everybody else but you know you find the parts of your communities that let you and in the wonderful people that are so excited that you want to be a part of you know you go to a Naru's bazaar and you know it's just amazing but you know just, just like in white society and, uh, you know, Iranian society, there's every now and then you just come across a person who doesn't <laughs> want to let you in, is gatekeeping. And it's, mm-hmm. it's tough, but I move
0: past them. Well, I, I find that the, um, the rule rather than the, rather than the exception. I think language is such a key signal of belonging that not speaking it is really hard And I've gotten to the point now where sometimes I won't even identify as Persian to another um, Persian person, because I just don't want to go through the whole rigmarole of sorry, I don't speak Farsi super fluently. And this is why. And um, I remember about four or five years ago, and I read about this in the second book, Bones of Belonging. It's a short story where I went to a Persian language class. I thought, okay, I'm going to crack this. I'm going to learn Farsi. I'm going to practice. And uh, it was we had to learn to speak and write at the same time. And it was a small class. And there was not many of us, but there was, um, I remember one other Persian younger woman who was not born in Canada, but of course spoke fluent Farsi because both her parents were Persian and she grew up speaking it and she would just, you know, the accent would flow off her tongue and it just became increasingly frustrating. And I think what was, what was happening for me is I was born there and I grew up and I've encountered all these like uh, you know, experiences of, of being identified as, as Persian and, and facing the the brunt of that. But I can't, mm-hmm. I can't somehow I'm lower on the authenticity ladder of being Persian because I can't speak as fluently as you can. And just, mm-hmm. and I think just feeling really resentful and pissed at that. And so I, I agree with you where I've come to now is I found my own, you know, identity palace and we celebrate certain traditions and I have Persian friends and I, I don't at this point in my life go into community settings because I just, it's too exhausting for me to front that dance. Um, just like I don't go into certain white settings, you know, I don't go into meditation and yoga communities much anymore because it's exhausting on the other end of the spectrum to kind of, or be one of the few people of color and surface the, the um, diversity inclusion conversation.
1: I feel that. And I loved what you said about being lower on the authenticity ladder. Exactly how I feel like, and, you know, like I said, just not being enough. And, you know, it's like, you know, my eating disorder comes out of not being pretty enough, thin enough, you know, you know, white enough. And then there's this, you know, it's like, okay, fine. So I'll, you know, lean more towards my Persian side. They're like, no, you're not Persian enough either. And it's like, like, my God, the rage. It's like, gosh it's like you know how like tires or you know there's certain animals that are very just lone creatures and you know don't socialize really unless to mate I'm like god I was born into the wrong species man like this is this is not this is not the way I'm supposed to function and yeah so it's it's really really intense and it's really really tough when you're trying to and I, like you said sometimes I don't want to identify as Persian because I don't want to deal with the criticism of having these holes in my language I mean they're pretty massive holes and you know you'll see people like I've had some Persian people like well just learn it's like I like, got what am I, I I can't just learn like I have all this life going around me and even when my dad, he just got back from Iran this week and he's like well next time you should go for me I'm like you told me not to go with you next this time you said that it was politically a good place for me to be right now. Like I'm technically a citizen. I have my citizenship. I'm like, he's like, no, maybe you shouldn't go next time. It's not, it's not really, Oh my gosh! it's just, it's never going to be enough. I'm always going to feel conflicted. It's insane. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I totally get it. No. So here's an interesting question for you. So we've identified the isolation, the particular isolation that can happen for mixed race people where, you know, I don't really belong anywhere. Um, And I wonder if that connects to writing and particularly writing memoir and so I'll Mm -hmm. say for myself I really I mean I think obviously again it's not like anyone can just um, write and publish so I would say that muscle set was already there for both of us Mm -hmm. however I started writing because I think I had to for my own mental health I had to actually create a space where I could write and validate my own story like I think that was among other motivations, that was one of the motivations that had me sit down and pen a memoir before I knew it was going to be published. Um, so back to this idea of, you know, you, you said I'm the tiger or I, I've created my own place to belong. The writing is that zone for me. And I continue to write because it's one of the places where I feel connected to something larger than myself. I feel a sense of belonging probably more than I do in most other places in my life outside of my immediate family. Um, and I wonder, does that resonate at all for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely the writing, the sitting down and, you know, just actually working through things uh, and in a, a way that you're creating something out of them. Absolutely. Like everything I do, whether it's poetry or fiction, is me trying to work something out. The publishing is a completely different story, right? Like whether or not, you know, I feel comfortable and represented and seen in that world. I, I spoke with someone recently and uh, I said, you know, it, she, she said she was very surprised she didn't hear about Fuse before because She's a professor of critical mixed race studies. How does she not know about this? I said, ah, you know, I don't think it's really like, I know a tra- mixed race mental health. I don't think it's very trendy, like as far as books go, like, and she was very sweet and, you know, just said she loved the book. And, um, but she said, you know, I think it is like, she. said, you have the first book that deals with this mixed race mental health. She said, I think it's just like ahead of its time of the problem when I was writing the book that I was looking for, you know, any kind of research to do. And there was nothing.
0: hmm. Yeah. It's, I think it's an act of courage to write nonfiction because you're, you, I I think there is, well, at least for me, I think the most powerful nonfiction, if it's really is on some level, the person is writing for themselves. Like there's that level of honesty and exposing something and trusting. I think the courage is then trusting if one is going to publish that the story is going to resonate with others, Mm -hmm. whether or not they're in a mixed race identity or not. And I I certainly see that in your writing. There is a level of truth speaking, and I'd like to think in mine as well. So one of the pieces in this upcoming book is around um, each of the major essays focuses on a different aspect of belonging. And one of them is around belonging and relationship. And I talk about the impacts of exile, immigration, racism um, on interpersonal close intimate relationship. And there were a couple scenes that I know I come across as really in an unflattering light. And, but uh, it's like, if I'm going to write this, I got to, mm-hmm. you know, I can't, writing isn't a process of, of making oneself look pretty, especially nonfiction. It's a process of truth speaking. And that's very different. It's messy and it's about being human and i putting, I think, those that messiness into context. So there's a meaning making process.
1: I I absolutely love memoirs where I feel like people haven't held back, but I do encourage people writing nonfiction to, if they are going to write something down to question their motivations first, because if it's just to, you know, cathartic, make yourself feel better put in a diary. But if you want to encourage or affect change or create community, you know, and help people, then that's great. And you said your parents haven't read yours or they have?
0: My mother has. My father, it's uncertain. I think he, it's uncertain how much he's read. I think there's a similar kind of dissociation between, I think him being proud his daughter has written a book, but we don't talk about the content or it's kind of brushed over. We just never allude to it. I did, no, I did talk to him. I did talk to him before it came out and just said, dad, I do share X, Y, and Z. Here's why. So I did, I did let him know, but whether... He has read those parts, what he feels about it. We don't venture there. I, I've put it down to, I think immigrate, immigrating is traumatic and they have their own trauma histories because of that, you know, leaving Iran after the revolution. And, and I think that it's terrain that is so emotionally fraught for them that I've realized I don't think they can touch it until unless they unravel a whole bunch of other things. And to really go into reading and understanding, I think my story, maybe your story, would just be its own it would require them to be willing to do a certain amount of their own healing. I think to even go down that Definitely. path. So I've just kind of made peace with, okay, that's, that's their emotional limits. And I, I respect that, but I do have to pick up on something. Cause I was wondering whether I could ask you about the brothel visit, such a honest and powerful scene in the book. And uh, maybe just speak to what brought you there. Like what, where were you at at that point in, in your life?
1: A lot of vodka. Um and <laughs> But I mean, it wasn't like I was drunk when I went in there. I mean, I was just drinking all the time. In fact, I was very sober though when I made this decision to go in. For after, after first year of university, my dad just basically um, cut me off, and so I was, you know, spent like the next three years not really talking to him that much. And and so I, by the time I graduated, I like I had odd jobs throughout school, but by the time I graduated, um, I was just. I was in a really bad, bleak place. I'd been kind of worn down a lot and um, I was drinking way too much and I was in a on again, off again, very emotionally draining relationship. And I just you know, was looking for jobs in the back of the paper and I saw this call for escorts and I kind of like, was like, oh, okay. Well, I, I kind of figured it would be sexual, but maybe they'll they honestly just pay you to go on dates with lonely guys. But, you know, I, was, I knew I was lying to myself, but I still went. And, um, I just was so tired of, in my head, I figured like, this isn't that big of a leap because, you know, i would grown up with this narrative of women either being angels or whores, and there's no gray area in between. Like, you know, you know, one of the most like, vicious Persian curses is saying your sister's a whore. I was kind of tired of always being lumped in with the whore because I wasn't quite I was an angel enough. There was just no space for you just to be an individual in between all that. So, and, you know, my mom would sometimes tell me that, you know, oh, your dad says this about you, your dad says this, your dad says you're a human toilet or you treat your body like a toilet. And, you know, just I like whether or not he ever said this stuff, I can remember being on MSN Messenger and getting these messages from my mom. And I don't I, I dissect maybe her possible motivations and telling me any of this in the book. I won't get into them there. I don't hold resentment towards her, but I. I really was just years of my life and years and years and years of being told I was a whore being likened to a whore that I thought, you know, I'm tired. I'm broke. I'm working so hard. I have all the student debt to pay off. Fuck it. I'm going in. And I went in, you know, spoke to the woman who owned the place. Very nice lady. Um, got kind of a tour around by another woman named Horsch who, you know, showed me the ropes and everything. And I was supposed to start um, that night and I did, but I kind of like hid <laughs> from everybody so like you don't have to you never had to do anything you just if somebody if some guy like came in and was like okay I want her you could just say no but I like I hid the entire time so nobody would even see me and I wasn't I was dressed in like yoga gear I wasn't really trying to turn anybody on I wanted to do it but I was scared to do it and um I kind of just stayed the whole night there and then in the morning I woke up and thought okay you know, I, w- I was drinking the whole night and um, I'm just going to go home to my apartment and have a shower, maybe try to go for a run and I'll go back. And then I just, I never went back. There was just a line I couldn't cross. And I thought I could, I thought I could do it and I couldn't. And um, it's not because I thought that the women that were sex workers were terrible people or anything. It was just, I personally couldn't make that cross because I, I think they were there for. I'm not. I don't know them. I'm not going to say good reasons, but they they weren't necessarily there because they were drunk and pissed off and lonely and you know in terrible states of mental health. I mean, they seemed very together. I was a complete disaster, so I felt like um, at the time I didn't know why I didn't go back. Looking back on it now, it was I was an alcoholic. I had unchecked OCD. I was cutting myself and self harming all the time. I was throwing up everything I ate. My bulimia was out of control. Like there were so many reasons that I shouldn't have been there.
0: So yeah, I left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the way you put that, that um, it's not that the other workers were in a detrimental position, but just really being honest with themselves about the motivations and just like, it sounds like it was a rock bottom moment for you.
1: You know, there's a lot of rock bottoms. It's like a cliff. <laughs> yeah. There's a multiverse of rock bottoms for addicts to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I was really trying to be careful with that scene, not to um, place motivation or judgment on sex workers because I have none. They probably looked at me and thought, "She's a mess. We're gonna lose clients if they come here and see that." You know what I mean? Like, it was just one of those times where i really felt that fracture in myself. Like I'm being a very bad Muslim girl. I was a mess in my twenties.
0: Well, I think one of the the root um, problems is like, just how much in Western society we're, we grew up within this binary, right? Good, evil, um, Persian, British, uh, angel, whore. And <laughs> it's like, if you're not one thing, you're the other. And even the healing journey, like um, that, there's a, you hit rock bottom, and then you magically kind of go to the other extreme instantaneously, or after a few months of tackling something. And life is so not like that. Like, it's, it's so circular. And I think about just how what you're naming is, there's, you know, the multiplicity of rock bottoms is really so much truer to this theme of what does belonging look like over the course of a lifetime? Well, it's iterative and it's, we hit rock bottom and hopefully we learn something and do a little bit better, but then there's another one. And, and it's, it's, it's a continuous journey of learning about ourselves and the world around us.
1: Yeah, I also, like, I I really don't support the recovery narrative. Like I try not to use
0: even the word recovery.
1: For me, like I, the recovery narrative seems to be like, okay, you have to get better. And then when you're better, you're worthy of love I fast every day for about 16 hours and you know I know my therapist is like this is an extension of your eating disorder don't fast I can't help it um I you know the working out yes it's for like to release all this pent-up anxiety but it's also an extension of my eating disorder and me feeling worthless if I don't um my OCD will never be completely in check I Still have quite bad body dysmorphia disorder, which I don't really talk about in the book, but I don't talk about it a lot because I didn't want to like slap on another label there. I already feel like I'm burned enough by them. I definitely just think the recovery narrative positions me in that like angel category that I'm never going to be in. So I reject it categorically for myself that I will never be recovered. I will always be this work in, not even work in progress. I'm not, I'm going anywhere. I just am, I'm, this is it this is it. Like I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not moving towards some ideal state. And I, I don't feel the need to pressure myself into that. For me, recovery is the idea of a recovery is just really confounding. And again, it just further exasperates this idea that I'm not enough exactly where and how I am. So I refuse to be a part of it. Now that's not saying that I shouldn't work on behaviors to be healthier and just a more, have a more joyful life. Absolutely. But whatever that like shining ideal of recovery is, I'm not interested in it.
0: Well, it's so interesting. Cause I usually ask at the end, what is belonging to you at this point in your life? And I feel like you've just answered it and just so beautifully like that, really cultivating that ability to accept where we are, however we are in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the more we do that, the less the distress, Um, behavior uh, manifests oh my gosh well I appreciate this conversation and your time and just it's been so wonderful just to finally talk to you so thank you for jumping on
1: well thank you it was amazing to talk to you I can't I can't wait to talk hopefully in person without our kids
0: so much for joining today please feel free to share this episode and you can also visit my website anahidashgard a-n-n-a-h-i-d-d-a-s-h-t-g-a-r-d.com where you can order my latest book Bones of Belonging where I dive deeper into themes we discussed here today be well and look forward to you joining next time